Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Human Flourishing Initiative podcast. Um, this is your host, Jake Tremaine, and we are lucky to have Brian Pell with us today. Brian is a pastor of a young church called Vintage Church, located just outside of Chapel Hill in Carborough. So let me remind y'all, um, the purpose of this podcast is to talk to community players and pick their brains on how they're flourishing as an individual in their particular community. Um, these podcasts are meant to complement the discussion groups that we've been having, um, which is bi-weekly on Tuesdays, where we discuss flourishing more on a collective level, having to do with societies and how they um, interact in the different parts of these societies, interact um, things like policy and urban design and how um, these can either promote or hinder flourishing. Um, and then every now and then we'll have a guest speaker. So be um, checking out the Human Flourishing Initiative website um, to see what's upcoming in, on that front. Um, but Brian, happy to have you. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. Really so, grateful uh, to, to be invited. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the conversation. Sweet. Would love if you could open with just your story, um, maybe a brief history that has led to you uh, to where you are right now in Carborough, um, yeah, yeah. being the pastor of Vintage Church, your family, Absolutely. what you're into. Yeah. Uh, so I've got a little bit of a non-traditional route here in that North Carolina is my seventh state. And, and, and a lot of my story is tied up in that movement and that sense of displacement. And um, in, in my line of work, I would attribute it to God's kindness that we're here now and we intend to be here for a long time. So I am married. My wife and I have been together um, for 11 years in total. We've got two dogs, and we just had our first kid this year. His name uh, is Judah. My wife's name is Caitlin. And she just launched her own. She's a physician assistant. She just launched her own uh, practice serving this community. Um, we, we got our house, which is a couple minutes south of campus, a couple years ago. And so we, we really intend to be here for a long, long time. And then my role in particular in this place is I am a pastor, uh, both in the technical sense of got the a graduate degree that that's associated with it, but also then just in the practical sense, I'm a uh, that you boil it way down to two things. It's a I'm a shepherd of souls, and and I'm using soul in uh, not not exclusively in the spiritual sense, but in the whole person sense. And so uh, I care about people's stories and want to steward those well and and care for them as they journey through life. So a shepherd of souls, and then a teacher of the scriptures. Uh, and I'm sure I'll reference some of that here as we get rolling. But anyway, so those are the two kind of things that I'm doing on a day-to-day basis is I'm with people or I'm studying and writing. That's great. And Vintage is a very new church. Obviously, you mentioned you just moved here That's a couple right. years ago. Yeah, um, Vintage. Uh, we're, we're, we're sort of a family of churches, but but our particular church is just a hair over a year old. Right. And so, yeah, we're uh, notoriously young and we're learning the place and we're trying to love it well. Well, that's great. That's great. All right, so now we're going to jump into flourishing. Um, favorite question to start with is, can you describe mm. um, how you think about happiness and flourishing as two different things, if Absol- they are different, if yeah, they're yeah. the same? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's a fruitful question. Um, so I would start, uh, for, for me, my, my intuition is to, of course, go to the beginning of the scriptures, but but I won't read it. Um is, is we're given a picture, and I think this holds across spiritual and even philosophical traditions. As you look at ancient wisdom, flourishing tends to be, and I think this is, again, in particular, and it's true in the Hebrew scriptures, um, there's 
um, they're related, but they're not the same. The idea of flourishing and the idea of happiness. Happiness is sort of a component of flourishing. Um, so in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, uh, you've got the idea of shalom. It's a, it's a well-known word, e- even to some degree a well-known concept. Um, but, but the idea uh, to capture it in English is challenging because English is specific and Hebrew tends to be broad. And so shalom is this all, almost all-encompassing idea of things like flourishing, wholeness uh, in English. A close approximation is probably peace, that idea, um, and delight all wrapped up together. And what you then see in, in the Old Testament, right from the beginning, if you go to Genesis 1, you see it at the end of Genesis 1. I'm stealing from a scholar here by the name of uh, Matthew Lapine. Um, is, is in, uh, to, to, to borrow from modern parlance again, as I explain it, it's, it's almost like the psychological idea of integration, where a whole bunch of us is brought together into a whole, and it, and it helps make sense of each part, but it also um, fills out each part. Uh, same idea with flourishing and shalom is, is from the very beginning. you got this picture of God creating all of everything, including very intentionally people, and there's this directional aspect of flourishing where, or wholeness, where, where all of it has come together, and it's called good, the Hebrew word is tov, or very, very good. Um, it, it, it has meaning. It has fullness. It's, it's all that it, meant, it was meant to be. And so this directional component that I'm stealing from Matthew Lapine is if you take the people in the story, um, whether you believe they're literal or allegorical, if you take the people in the story, uh, there's every direction outward from them is integrated. Uh, you've got this upward relationship with God that is active and sweet. You've got this downward relationship with the ground and, and the animals and the land <clears throat> where it's mutually beneficial. Uh, and, and then you've got this outward relationship of intimate relationships with people uh, that are going really uh, beautifully and, and they're full of love. And then there's this inward component of uh, w- human beings are all that they're meant to be. They know who they are. They know what their role is in, uh, in creation. And so that is uh, to, it's probably more words than I needed, but that's the idea of shalom. It's this, it's this full directional integration or wholeness that exists. Happiness then uh, is a component of flourishing. It is sort of the, the internal byproduct of, uh, of flourishing happening. And I'll, I'll borrow from, in this case, uh, two, two different scholars really quickly. Um, first, uh, there's a well-known um, social psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt who wrote a book about happiness. It's called The Happiness Hypothesis. And he's a, he's a, um, uh, he is a, a, an atheist, uh, grew up in a, sort of a Jewish tradition, but he is himself an atheist, a professor at NYU. And, and I'm ruining the book to some degree because this is in the last paragraph. But, <laughs> but, but uh, the conclusion of his take after studying, uh, you know, uh, compiling a whole bunch of different studies, getting a whole bunch of data, uh, his conclusion is that happiness is sort of an in-between is the language that he uses. Uh, and, and basically what he says is you've got to get the circumstances right and then wait, mm. which is fascinating. So, so, so for, for an atheist studying from a social uh, scientific perspective, you've got this get as much of it that you control, and some of you don't control, but get as much of it as you can aligned, and then happiness will arrive. And I'll add one other scholar here, uh, a woman uh, by the name of Zena Hitz from D.C., uh, wrote a piece recently uh, that I really appreciated. 
the conclusion of her piece uh, is also it's a the topic is adjacent to happiness, uh, but she concludes with it, and she says that happiness in the Christian tradition is not within one's power on principle. It's a gift of grace. So once again, you've got this flourishing image in all through ancient wisdom. It's not just in the Hebrew scriptures of, of flourishing in all directions. And then, and then the, the downstream part of that is a, a true human delight um, in real time. And so that, that would be how I would distinguish between uh, shalom or flourishing or wholeness. And then happiness is, is then how we experience that flourishing. Right. No, that's beautiful. Um, a lot of the time in the club, we talk about, I, you, you mentioned the word control a whole lot and how control is, I mean, our control is obviously very finite and we can't really control when we're happy because we don't really uh, understand like how our circumstances are going to shape up most of the time. But a lot of this club is talking about, you know, manipulating our surroundings, manipulating our community, not manipulating. That sounds, um, like it has a negative connotation to it. Um, but in a sense, manipulating all these uh, factors that play into our life to make us flourish is is what we talk about. But is that a, a futile effort um, in trying to make us happy? Is there more than just hmm. the circumstance that we're in that we, we might need to cue in on a little more that would point us towards flourishing in a, in a more fuller sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that is in some ways the question in real time. We're We're technique obsessed mm-hmm. so we want a formula and and what tends to be the case is we'll then do a bunch of studies which I'm very much for we'll do a bunch of studies acquire the data look at them and then realize that they dovetail really nicely with ancient wisdom of uh, so that would be the example of the Jonathan Haidt piece of there is there's an aspect of happiness um, that we do control there there's a, there's a certain amount of the human will and then the will to the will to power that we do have, but we like the 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 wholeness, at least that the scriptures point to, is not something over which we have uh, full control. We are dependent upon, I, I would argue, God, but we're also dependent upon one another mm. um, for flourishing to be an, a, an achievable um, end. And often, if you follow at least the the track in the scriptures, often we fight love. We fight the things we we fight flourishing, uh, and we often do that intuitively. And so, uh, that that then is the human predicament. Mm. Uh, I'd love it if you could talk about maybe some, you know, key moments in your life when mm. you started to realize this. Um, obviously, you have a very developed. That was a very simple question there between happiness and flourishing, and there was a good, extremely developed, you know, theology behind that. Um, mm. How did you get to that point? When when did the mm the question become apparent and apparent and important to you mm. um and how did you go about discovering that what experiences pointed you towards um mm. how you define flourishing there? that's a that's a good question and and ironically this one will be far less uh, academic in any natural sense <laughs> um what so I, so i i grew up in church spaces and around some amount of theological thought but I needed to be freed of that to some degree uh, to then arrive back at it as a helpful tool. So uh, I'll, I'll get specific. In my early 20s, I went to take a job in ministry in Denver, Colorado. And I had no money. 
and I was still just dating my wife at the time. She uh, was still in undergrad, and so I went out knowing nobody and took this job. Uh, it's, it's even hard to distinguish exactly why I took it. And, and upon arrival, my initial living situation fell apart. I was supposed to live with some folks who were attached to the college that I went to, and, and that fell apart. And so at the last second, uh, the church that I was going to be working at uh, put out feelers within the body, and, and uh, this older couple uh, said they were willing to house me within days of me showing up, somebody they'd never met. Uh, they knew my first name. And that relationship completely recalibrated the way that I think of the good life. And so uh, uh, to rewind for just a moment, um, to borrow from a different scholar, to go back to the technical part of this, uh, shalom, that idea of flourishing, um, this is a gentleman named Cornelius Plantinga, who's the younger brother of a famous philosopher by the name of Alvin Plantinga. Um, He describes shalom in similar terms and then he, he simplifies it to the way life should be like the way things should be uh which is really helpful here then because i i began to encounter this older couple uh, their name their names were mario and ida joe uh, mario and joe for short and and i ended up in the end living with them on and off for two years and and what happened was i it flourishing began to stare me in the face uh, to uh, this older couple who was present to people, present to themselves, present to God. And, and like they were the ones as an illustration uh, that taught me how to drink alcohol. I grew up in uh, a house that was a teetotaling house and they, they invited me into how that could be good. Potentially my conscience hadn't allowed it before. And, and that would be just a, an illustration of this, this couple slowly over time without ever lecturing without ever showing me anything intentionally just passively I got to live near them and watch them and I saw oh this is what it looks like and it's much simpler much slower uh, and much more beautiful than I had previously thought and and so it was actually seeing it in real life that began to recalibrate uh, my my areas of interest and then all of the theology all of the studies that were ongoing uh, all of it started to come together in a way that I hope is articulate and helpful. But uh, yeah, so it's it's real life stuff that that changed it for me. That's amazing. Um, how how in your life uh, are you? I guess mirroring Mario mm. and Ida Joe these yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How That's, are you? That is the question. How are you flourishing? Um, what practices? And this is can be a little more practical. But what yeah. practices do you? Yeah. Um, try to implement, and we'll maybe maybe where would you like to? be a little more proficient obviously you just had a kid and you're starting a church <laughs> so things are yeah there's plenty going on work it out for you but yeah uh that's that's a good question and and to be honest that is in our home like that is how we frame like it's you, you've seen probably it's they they come back around periodically those wwjd bracelets uh <laughs> which which tend to be tend to do as much damage as they do help but uh the what would jesus do kind of moniker for Caitlin and me, it's sort of what would Mario and Joe do? Like, and we really do think in those terms uh, of what does life look like when you've seen it and you're near it? Uh, how, how does that transform the way that we then approach our, our life now? And, and so it does, it, it has changed uh, the way that we live life now. So I, 
I, I'm wary as a pastor. I, I wrestle with this every Sunday as, as somebody who teaches from the scriptures. I'm wary of getting too granular because I don't want it to sound like, I number one, I've got it figured out, or number two, like the things that work for me will inherently work well for somebody else. Right. But I will still try to answer <laughs> the question. Uh, so, so for me, w- the way that Mario in particular um, – approached each day has transformed uh, the way that I approach each day that I live as well. Yeah, so I'll give you some examples. Um, Mario woke up an hour and a half before whenever his first appointment, meeting, whatever was. Uh, and the first thing he did was stretch in bed because he's old, uh, which, <laughs> which I don't yet have to do. Uh, and then he'd get ready for the day a little bit. And then I'd get to watch. He was the first person in my life. It's a stereotype, but I got to actually see it. He'd wander over to his kitchen table, get himself a bowl of cereal or bowl of oatmeal, open his Bible, and just slowly start the day. He was also the slowest eater I've ever been around in my life. And so he needed a full kind of 45, 60 minutes to start each day thoughtfully, deliberately, uh, and with enough food and enough time with God uh, to get the day rolling well. And that, I'm, I'm not that, I don't wake up an hour and a half before my first appointment. Uh, I do wake up an hour before my first appointment, whenever that is, to uh, get the things done that I need to get done and then to try to learn from Mario's example. That would be an illustration of how my days start because I was near Mario. And then the other thing, this one's a little bit more 30,000 foot view. Mario and Joe, more than anybody else that I've ever been around, they largely intuitively, like they never told me this. This was my interpretation of watching them. Their day, their week, their their lifelong rhythms were just so clearly to me patterned after how do we enjoy and love God and how do we enjoy and love people? And... And so that then shapes how most of my work week and hopefully my life, uh, were how I organize it. Um, so I, I gotta get concrete. My work schedule. Uh, I have a five day work week like most. Um, Sundays are the gathering, and so that gets a lot of attention. I won't go into the details on that. But then the four days of the work week, Monday through Thursday for me. Um, Monday tends to be staff oriented, people focused things. Tuesday and Thursday, on average, uh, tends to be people in the congregation or people in the community, uh, meeting with them, caring for them, getting to know them, that sort of a deal. That's also some, where some of my deliberate prayer rhythms for the congregation happen. And then Wednesday tends to be a contemplation and writing day. Uh, and so you, that I'm, I'm adopting that from some other pastors, too, but that it's fundamentally watching Mario and Joe uh, and then and allowing that to reframe how I think about my structure of the week. And then Caitlin and I, um, I'll, I'll, I'll end this chunk with this. Uh, Caitlin and I, about quarterly, maybe every six months, it's changed a little since we had uh, Judah, we'll, we'll sit down with pen and paper and ask the question, all right, what does – we won't invoke Mario and Joe every time, but, like, what, what does <laughs> – this coming season look like where we're living with those as the priorities, where we're living uh, out of a pursuit of enjoying and loving God and pursuing and, and enjoying uh, other people. And um, 
anyway, I'll stop there. So yeah, we, we, we try to bake these things in as we uh, lay out our schedule. Definitely. Um, through our discussions with the club, we've talked about uh, blue zones, first of all, and yeah. the main characteristic of these blue zones are being deliberate with the kind of rhythms of life. They're mm. oftentimes slower and more thoughtful, you know, more time c- for contemplation, more That's time right. to spend for other people. Um, and you, you flip, the, flip the switch and you hop over to our Western world here and you think about the rate at which we live our lives, mm. especially in a town like this where, like, most people are young and educated mm. and very, very, very high achieving um, and can't really slow down or everyone will get ahead of them. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that mm. and maybe offer up some advice mm. um, for students. Are, uh, the uh, desired podcast audience here is students our age um, yeah. who are wondering how to flourish in such a high-speed society and wondering how to think deliberately about these problems that we face instead of just rapid-firing, trying yeah. to fix them with half-baked solutions. Yeah. Um, yeah, thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is, uh, for, for me, that is the creative challenge of wanting to love students well is, is that question. Um, and so I love this question. I wrestle with it a lot. And for the sake of time, I will limit myself to two things. I could go on and on about this for a long, <laughs> long time. Um, but I'll, I'll stick to two. The first is a stolen idea from uh, a thinker and pastor by the name of John Mark Homer. Stolen from his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which I recommend um, to all millennials and Gen Z in particular, uh, because it speaks directly. And it's not because it's perfect, it isn't, but it speaks directly to this question uh, in a way that's really helpful. But but in that book, he, he makes the case, uh, and I think he's right, and I think he's right because of the scriptures, uh, that, that we become what we give our attention to. And in my experience with students at UNC, and I say this with not an ounce of judgment in me because I feel this uh, myself, I experience these same tendencies. Uh, in my experience with UNC t- students, um, there is a default posture to, to attend to uh, two, maybe three things with, with an almost obsessive focus uh, the most obvious is the academic and achievement piece. Uh, the amount of students that I chat with who are talk about how busy their week is uh, and how um, how much they've got coming ver- and, and or uh, how much they haven't slept and or how much uh, <laughs> this affects their grad school prospects or like that. It's almost if, if they're going to word vomit, almost always it's in that space because uh, that's getting their attention. Uh, so, so that's the first one. The second one um, and this is not the fault of student, you know, the, all of us grew up in a culture like this, myself included. Um, and so the second one tends to be distraction or entertainment focused. Uh, the things that uh, we, we sort of enjoy in a frivolous way that, that fill the gap when we're not attending to our studies. Uh, the things that just feel good, the things that I, I like or I'm interested in, uh, Instagram, TikTok, uh, on and on we could go with a- examples of this uh, that that tends to be the next space that gets our attention and then the third one if there's a breakthrough and there isn't for everybody but if there's a breakthrough the third one uh, tends to be romance or uh, some amount of uh, 
uh, a pursuit of love or marriage or dating or whatever it may be. And, and those are the things on average when I chat with students um, that, that, that get their attention. And so the, the initial practical encouragement that I would give to students is, is pay attention to what you are paying attention to. Uh, because uh, decisions, the decisions that you make in the day-to-day gradually form rhythms or habits, depending on what language you prefer. And those rhythms and habits become the kind of person you are. Um, and that's why that's what John Mark Comer means when he says we become what we give our attention to, uh, because our attention affects our day-to-day decisions, which affect our rhythms, which affect, in, in um, my tradition, our character. Um, and... And so that would be number one in terms of uh, things to think through, uh, words of encouragement. Uh, what are you giving your attention to? Does it align with uh, the things that you really believe bring flourishing? Um, and I could go on and on about that. That's number one. Number two, in terms of uh, practical insights or encouragements, uh, I've just started to teach this more regularly on Sundays um, because I think it's important for especially where we live. Uh, it's that in the... In the Genesis account, in early in the scriptures, part of the framing, part of the logic of flourishing uh, that I think we get almost exactly backwards uh, is if the ancient scriptures have anything to communicate about what it is to be human, number one, it's that human beings are made in the image of God, and so there's sort of a, a spark of divinity and a spark of relationship in all human beings and they're, they're eternally significant. Um, so that's, that's the initial, that's true for every human being across the board. The second thing that happens to human beings, and I love this so much, after they're formed up and beloved, the second thing that happens to humans is they are placed. The, the, the Hebrew word is put, so intentionally put within the garden. And then they're given meaningful work to do, meaningful contributions to make. Uh, and, and the meaningful contributions in that story are care for the animals, name them, uh, and, and then cultivate the rest of the world. That's, that's then the logic of where it goes. But pro- logically prior to vocation would be the technical word. Prior, logically prior to vocation is placement. And millennials and Gen Z are an intuitively displaced people. We, we're not sure where we are or why we're here, but we know sort of where we want to go, or at least we know we want to travel. <laughs> uh, we know we uh, want to be somewhere else for at least a chunk of time uh, to the neglect of where we are right now, the literal ground that we're on with our literal physical neighbors. Um, and so if ancient wisdom brings anything to bear on the question of flourishing, absolutely essential to it is place, is physical place and the people who are there. So I I could keep going, but in terms of words of encouragement for practical things to think through, flourishing as students, number one, what are you giving your attention to? And, And number two, you know, you're here. Why are you here? What, what in, in, in my tradition, what, what does God have for you here? But, but it, it, regardless, if ancient wisdom speaks to it, that you're here is significant and will, will affect all of the work and all of the flourishing you can possibly have has to happen in a place and in a time. Mm. Uh, and so those would be my two just words of encouragement to UNC students as I care for them and get to know them. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. Here you say meaning, and the meaning comes from one being beloved, two being set in a place, and then vocation. That's right. We definitely do have that <laughs> a little bit backwards. Um, but I wonder if you could answer two questions. One is meaning mm. possible. I think about, and th- this is a special case, but I've had the opportunity to listen to some um, missionaries in the past who mm. were nomads by nature. I mean, mm-hmm. they were moving all about. They were never di- tied down to a place. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think about a lot of different stories. I think um, some professional figures that I look up to are moving, working, yeah. doing a whole lot, yeah. very high-capacity individuals, making a very impactful um, you know, impression on the industries which they're assigned to. Mm. Um, and in some sense, you could call that a place, but maybe aren't tied to their communities back home. Is it possible to derive meaning without those? F- maybe the second piece. I think you would argue that the first piece is an absolute necessity. Hmm. Um, and then, how is that tied to flourishing? Um, it's a good question. So I, I don't want to oversimplify. In that, even in the scriptures, there are exceptions to the rule because life is complicated and the world is complicated. Uh, many New Testament figures and Old Testament figure figures were nomadic or or exiled, hmm. pushed out. Um, for one reason or another. Uh, and and so I'm not trying to overstate the need for place in that it doesn't leave space for a lived experience. However, we are intuitively displaced as opposed to like uh, pushed out for the most part. There's exceptions to that rule, even politically, even locally. But um, so, so I would say there are exceptions to the rule. I think the, or, uh, the invitation of the way of Jesus, and I'm going to... Uh, add some flavor to this in a minute, but the invitation of the the way of Jesus is not to an, um, a, a wild, extraordinary, like crazy life. It, what it does is it gives ordinary life, eternal or ordinary life, eternal significance, uh, such that in my case, uh, spending several hours this morning caring for a baby who's teething, is not mundane, meaningless dad work. It's of eternal significance because Judah is beloved by God mm-hmm. and, and he's been placed in my family. And, and I could go on and on about that. But, but what it does is uh, if, if Jesus' teachings are right, then ordinary life has much more significance than we give it. And we, in our culture and in our moment, especially here in Chapel Hill, we are prone to yearning for the extraordinary, thinking that's where meaning comes, and it's just not, it's objectively untrue. And I'll add some flavor here uh, to, to, to defend, I think, the kinds of people you're referring to who are high capacity and all over, or missionaries and, and nomads. Um, the Harvard study of adult development, uh, I think, has, and they're in the second iteration of it now, but there's some really fascinating data that came out of that. It was a longitudinal study of like 750 people over the entirety of their lives. And as they rounded the corner toward the twilight of their lives, they, they started to ask questions about the fullness experienced in life uh, because that is a, that's an interesting uh, line of study. And, and basically across the board, I'm oversimplifying for the sake of time, but, but basically across the board, as the question was asked, what gave your life meaning? Almost to a person, regardless of background, regardless of you know, levels of success or whatever it may be, almost to a person, the answer had to do with the quality and vitality of their most intimate relationships, mm-hmm. which is still an inherently 
placed experience, even if you're moving, right? Even if you're physically uprooting to some degree, the, the, the close relationships, the close confines, the people you're investing in over time uh, is still inherently a, a placed experience, even in a digital world. Um, it, it requires time and attention and patterns and so on. Uh, and so I think even in the exceptions, and you see it in the New Testament, like with Paul who travels as a missionary, number one, he would still spend considerable periods of time in places as a tent maker and would teach as he went. But in addition to that fact, uh, he also maintained a writing relationship with quite a few different people and even close confidants uh, like Timothy and others, uh, where even as a nomadic you know, existence or even in a nomadic existence, there's still a certain amount of grounding and physical activity and relational commitment that, that continues. But for most of us, so actually that I've spent a lot of time speaking about the exception. For most of us, it's allowing, I would argue, God to place us, learning to do our good work there and loving our actual physical neighbors. And that is where we then derive I mean, happiness and meaning are sort of adjacent to one another. Um, but in the, in the teachings of Jesus, um, that that's where it comes together as being placed and then using our gifts and using our capacities to bless the world. Mm. There's a statistic from uh, the Blue Zone study, um, and it talks about, that's by Dan Buettner, and it talks about um, how five of the t- 263 centenarians, which is individuals who live past 100, um, all of the, of the 263 in the study, um, five belonged, I mean, only five didn't belong to a faith-based community. Hmm. And I don't know how they predicted this one, but for, it can add four to 14 years to your life. Hmm. Not sure how valid that last claim is, but just looking at that number, only five didn't belong to hmm. a faith-based. And this isn't like inherently, I don't think it's specifically Christian. Yeah, it's not. Only one, I think, of those groups is explicitly Christian, if, right. I, if I recall. Um, but that's just interesting. Yeah. I mean, they, there's the, hey, we're in it for the long haul with you kind of aspect to that that is beautiful and meaningful. Um, I, would like to, I would like to think, and I would like to hope to model that in my life and you know, think about that further on this podcast and our discussions because um, I think it's a little bit lost on our generation, which yeah. is sad. Yeah, I, and I, I experienced that with millennials. I'll, I'll add just a tiny bit of flavor to this, which is, and I've got a lot here, but but if you look at the relational rhythms of Jesus, uh, they're really fascinating in that a lot of them are are very proximate over time, even as he moves, even as he himself is is adjusting to place. Now he spent thirty years as a carpenter in, in effectively one location, so that's still there. But then he spends two to three years traveling and teaching. But even still, he's got his primary relationship, his relationship with the Father, a relationship with God. The second one out is he's got his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. There's four intimate moments in the scriptures of him saying, you three come with me. It's a really, they're always emotional and, and, and prayerful moments. Next tier out, you've got the initial 12 or 11, depending on if you want to count Judas. Uh, the, that, that 12 of, of mutual conversation, a lot of meal sharing, traveling together. So, so um, to borrow a term that I'm going to misuse because if you bring it up, I'll have to redefine it. But uh, in church spaces, I like to call that community. So you've got your relationship with God is what Jesus prioritized, then close friends, then community. Then uh, there's a another group out from there. It was about 70 people. It's in Luke chapter 10. 
of, of folks that Jesus could gather together and send out in ministry. And the average church in America has 68 people. And I'm taking a little bit of creative license connecting the two. But there was a gr- another group around Jesus that was a little bit bigger and could be sent out in ministry. And that's essentially what the church does, gathers together weekly and gets sent back out. And then finally, you've got his relationship with the public, which that's a lot of what we see in the scriptures. But in terms of intentional re- relationships, they're very placed and they're very over time. And so that was just to add a little... Yeah, Yeah. back into that. I like that. I like that. Um, This is kind of shifting gears here, um, tied into the discussions we've been having having as a group. Um, I'd love to bring up, and I guess it relates a little bit, um, talking about John Jacques Rousseau um, in his first discourse about arts and sciences as a reading we discussed um, in previous weeks. He says, um, this is talking about knowledge. His whole the the premise of his argument is as as societies gain wealth, gain luxury, gain uh, access to the arts and sciences and start to grow intellectually. Um, They kind of lose their gusto and then end up (laughs) weakening in military sense in in a lot of history and Mm -hmm. getting overrun. And this is kind of the the demise of a society. Um, And he says, nature wished to protect you from your knowledge just as a mother snatches away a dangerous weapon from the hands of her child. I think this is going back to where we are nowadays, hyper uh, productive. Everything's industrialized. We're looking for the most efficient way to do everything. Whereas this mm-hmm. alternative life that we've seen in Blue Zones that we've heard from you today, it's slower and it's not so much about getting the most done and reading the most and sounding mm-hmm. the smartest. And I mean, I think those are some characteristics in nowadays. But what do you think about that quote? Because um, mm-hmm. Uh, obviously you've done you've done your reading like there's there's a lot of knowledge um on that side of the table at least and (laughs) obviously it's not it's not a not virtuous thing to be to be wise it says a lot in scriptures um yeah obviously Um, this is a hot take from yeah no 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 yeah no I, i think there's there's definitely wisdom in it um what what i would say is much of so so to take us back to the beginning um, of our conversation where we we're talking about flourishing or shalom uh, and the idea that this is the way things ought to be or the way things should be uh, that that implies in the philosophical sense um, a telos uh, that it implies a where things are going and why like this is the way it should go and this is the why behind how it should you know how it should get there. And that's for for me the the logic of it is is tied to God's character, His love, His creativity, and so on. And I could go on and on there. Uh, thus, all of what we what human beings bring to the project of flourishing, right? If it's bent toward that telos, toward the the flourishing that we see in the scriptures, that the the directional components I mentioned a moment ago. If it's if it's used to those ends, then we're using our capacities to bless our, bless one another, bless the world, uh, bless God, etc. Uh, that is knowledge used well, mm. and that's what it's for. That, it's that's the purpose. Centered, that's yeah. that's the purpose of knowledge is is toward the ends of relationship with God and flourishing all around. Uh, where I I think Rousseau hits on something that's true is it goes back to the human predicament. So the way that, a couple things on this, this is going to get a little nerdy for just a moment. 
in the theological sense. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga, who I quoted a moment ago, defines sin, and so that's a word that gets used largely in Christian spaces, but, but it gets used elsewhere too. He defines sin as culpable shalom breaking. So, so where one is culpable or responsible for breaking flourishing, that is what sin is. That would be his argument. The way that I have defined it in our church is uh, sin is uh, my soul-level malady uh, to, to orient my heart and my mind to me. And it's those two things dovetail very nicely. Uh, knowledge, when it is used for something other than the purpose of the flourishing described in, I would argue, the scriptures, uh, cannot and will not bless the world. It is, it, it's, it's turned in the opposite direction. It's turned towards me. It's turned towards things that I want or I need or my group and my stuff. And it, it, it actually uh, takes us away from flourishing, which is why the most potent evils done in the world are typically not done by dumb people. It's, it typically is, is, is knowledge, something that is a good gift, that has a purposeful end, used in a way that ends up being harmful and moving in the opposite direction of flourishing. Uh, and, and so in that sense, I think Rousseau is absolutely correct, where knowledge isn't uh, used in the way that it was meant to be used. At, at its best, it becomes a neutral, like a... a, a um, What's the word I want? An indifferent sort of uh, contribution to the world. It doesn't move anything forward, uh, and it can potentially move things backwards. Uh, and so that that I think we see time and again. I see that in me, right? Some of my reading is for the purposes of sounding smart, <laughs> which is not that helpful to anybody. Um, and and hopefully I'm learning and growing in that as I get older. But uh, so we all do that. Uh, so it's a question oh, of we all do that. Uh, it's a it's a question of knowing oneself, having a community around oneself that can help watch our hearts together and serve one another in the purpose of flourishing in the world. Mm. That's very insightful. Um, now to end, we're getting close to time here, but what are you reading right now? Oh, fun. <laughs> uh, good question. I am reading a few things. At any given time, I'm at the very least reading some fiction and some nonfiction, and that, that holds true. I'm going to keep my fiction to myself right now because I'm not sure how I feel about it yet. Uh, <laughs> but in terms of nonfiction things that I am reading, uh, I'm, I'm wrapping up another uh, – I've – uh, and I, I don't think I've mentioned him yet today, but uh, Wendell Berry collection of essays, just a joy to my soul. Um, he, if you want, if you're interested in diving deep on the idea of place and land and, and human beings' role in place and land, Wendell Berry is about as good as you could do. Uh, I'm reading one of the uh, our current moments experts on um, intergenerational relationships data on kind of boomers, extras, millennials, and Gen Z. Uh, there's a book that came out recently called Generations. I'm reading that with my team uh, because our church is notoriously young, but we want to reflect sort of the full uh, range of diversity here in Chapel Hill and Carborough. And part of that is generational connection, which is really challenging. Uh, and so we're reading that book. Uh, I'm revisiting uh, a famous work, famous in uh, 
weird corner of the world. Um, uh, a book on prayer by Hans Urs von Balthasar, um, sort of a masterwork from a spiritual luminary on the idea of prayer. Uh, and so those are probably uh, the the current nonfiction things that I'm reading, and they're uh, they've been a delight. That's great. Yeah, y'all check them out in the crowd. Um, Brian, thanks so much for coming today. I know it's your contemplative, creative <laughs> writing day, so thank you for spending it here. Hopefully, it uh, it was contemplative in a way. Yeah, yeah, I'm grateful. This was a lot of fun. Um, it was a lot of fun, and y'all make sure to tune in next time. Thank you. <laughs>